of a three-part thing for how I'll take it. So chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which is on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. All right, so first of all, what he sees. What does he see? A lampstand with how many lamps? Seven. Seven lamps. Now, we think of electric light. But they didn't have electricity back then. So what kind of a lamp was this? Like an oil lamp. You know, I think about a kerosene lamp or something where you've got a, a supply of, of uh, oil that keeps the lamps burning. Now, where does the oil come from? From where? A bowl. A bowl, yes, yes. A bowl on top of this lampstand, like a big reservoir. What fills the bowl? Two olive trees. So the oil is olive oil, that was really common for them. And so the two olive trees are producing olives. The olive oil is going into the bowl. What gets it from the bowl down to the seven lamps? Spouts, like little tubes or pipes. There's a debate about this. Is it one to each, so there's a total of seven, or is it seven to each? I think it's seven to each. So if you can imagine this deal, you've got these two olive trees that are producing a constant supply of olives, that the oil is going into the bowl, and then the bowl, from the bowl, seven spouts to each of the seven lamps, providing the constant oil for those lights to stay burning. Now we might think of this vision as sort of encumbered with an excess of plumbing, but what it really shows you is there is a constant abundant supply of oil whose lamps can stay lit all the time. Now the angel said to Zechariah, or actually Zechariah said to the angel, what are these, my lord? And the angel says, do you not know what these are? He says, no. <laughs> We may be on the same position. He's going to explain a little bit more later. Maybe not everything we would have wanted him to. But I actually think we might pause and think a minute about this. To think about a lampstand or a light, a lamp. What does that often represent in the Bible? What does it represent in Revelation? The lampstands. The churches, God's people. Now, why did God use the figure of a lampstand for his people? They're the light. God makes them his light. 
and He provides the fuel for us to shine forth the light of Christ within us. Remember Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. And so I suspect these lamps represent God's people and God's constantly providing the fuel to keep us shining for Him, to keep the light of Christ on inside of us, that kind of an idea here. But we're still kind of in the beginning stages of this vision. Thoughts and comments through verse 5. Yes. Um, is there any significance to the fact that there's seven lamps here in chapter 4 and that there were seven eyes on the stone in chapter 3? There's always significance to seven. Really, seven is sort of like God's special number, the number of completeness or perfection or whatever. So I think seven eyes means God completely watches over them. Seven lamps means they are completely shining for the Lord, that kind of thing. Yeah, you got sevens everywhere, especially in the prophets. But pretty much everywhere else also, that is really God's number, it seems to me. Other thoughts? Let's pick up one more section before we do a break. You guys look really good. I appreciate your alertness and eagerness. Six to ten. This is the word of the Lord in Jeroboam. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before the rubble, you shall become a plain, and you shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of the rubble have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of the rubble. These these seven are the eyes of the Lord which reigns through the whole earth. There's a lot in this. You know, I think some of the greatest pearls in the Bible are in some of the hardest passages. And that way, when we have to mine them out, we'll appreciate them. But remember the context. Not just with the lampstand, but remember the context of Zechariah. They are starting to build again on the temple. And that really comes out in these three lessons he teaches in the middle of this uh, lapstand vision. First lesson. This is what you say to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by, by my spirit. In other words, depend on God. God's work goes beyond our resources. We need to rely not on ourselves and what we can do, but on Him. So our weakness is not an obstacle. What we do in the work of God today should not be done thinking we can do this, we're strong enough for this, but relying and depending on God's strength. And when, when we come to apply this at the end of chapter 4, I'll talk more about each of these. But that's a great lesson for us. And Zerubbabel needed to know that because it seemed like an overwhelming job to rebuild the temple. But it wasn't something he was going to do with his own abilities, but God would provide the power and the might for this. Second, Obstacles don't matter. What are you, O great mountain? What can God do to the mountain? He makes it a plane. He just flattens it out. And he says, He will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace. Or he says in 9, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation, and his hands will finish. So the same Zerubbabel that laid the foundation of the temple would be able to finish it because the obstacles to, to getting the temple rebuilt that seems like a mountain 
gosh, can planize the mountain. He can just flatten it out, and all these mountains that seem so overwhelming become molehills. God loves to do that. There's not a mountain so big, God, God can't level it. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute, but remember Jesus saying, you can say to this mountain, be moved into the sea, and it will obey you. The idea that God can take the obstacles away that are keeping us from accomplishing great things in his service. Whatever forces oppose his kingdom become a plane that cannot hinder progress. So the same Zerubbabel that started it will finish it. With joy, in fact, he says. And then, verse 10, the third lesson, don't despise the day of small things. You know, it seems so insignificant what they were starting to do. And the mockers always say, you'll never get it done. The dream's foolish. The work's impossible. You can't do it. Forget it. Give up. No. Don't despise the day of small things. Because God's eyes are on, on, every, on all the earth. And he will see to it that that work is completed. So the message in these three little uh, morals here is a message of encouragement to Zerubbabel to keep working on the temple and get the job done. A message to depend on God, obstacles don't matter, and don't despise the small things you're able to do. Thoughts and comments about those at this point? We'll revisit those in a minute, but Adam? Uh, verse 6 really <clears throat> reminds me of Haggai chapter 2 when he says, My spirit remains in your midst. Yeah. Yeah, amen. It's not by us. God is with us to take care of the job. Alex? What do you think he emphasizes that as one of the points that uh, you can do with the small things? Why would you bring that up? Because they were demoralized, I think, by seeing how insignificant this temple looks compared to Solomon's. And it just, and maybe even just even thinking like, wow, any day's work just seems like we're not, we're not getting anything done. It's, it's such a big task. And so a lot of times we feel that way. It's like, there's 7 billion people in the world. We can't possibly evangelize the world. We might as well not even try. You know, that kind of thing. Yes. You yeah. know, back to the lampstands. You know, the, that that was the only light in that space at right. the time. I mean, that that was it. And and so we are that light today. We are. But you know, the scripture tells us, you know, with if God before us, right? Yeah. You know, we nothing don't is impossible. Nothing is impossible. But and He's providing that constantly to the light. Then He's providing that for us now. So, we are all the light there is. Yes. Good point. Amen. All right, let's take a break for 10 minutes or so, and then we will finish this vision and keep going uh, with the visions here in uh, Zechariah. So, this chapter 4 is like the vision saw, the lessons, and then the explanation of the vision. Aren't you glad there's an explanation for this vision? <laughs> Zechariah 4, listen to it, in 11 to 14. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, 
Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Wonderful. Now we've got the explanation. We don't need to go any further. <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, sometimes the explanation adds more complication than the original explanation. But, uh, you know, he wants to know about these two olive trees. Now, these would be the living olive trees that produce the olives that, I guess, we got some sort of a, uh, you know, olive uh, juice squeezer or whatever that's uh, funneling then the uh, olive oil into the uh, reservoir through these two golden pipes that then goes down through the uh, pipes to the lamps. And who are these two olive trees? And what are we informed? They're the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of all the earth. Uh, so you, that, that, is any more needed to be said? Apparently not. Apparently not. So who are the two anointed ones? Kind of a problem, isn't it? Um, well, think about it. In the Old Testament, who were the most commonly anointed people? Kings. Kings and priests. That's exactly right. Do you remember uh, uh, Samuel anointing Saul and anointing David? And uh, really the idea of the Messiah, the Christ, that means the anointed one, and the idea is he'd be king. It's really the point of being the anointed one. Um, and the priests, you remember how they were anointed and even had uh, the oil put on their uh, uh, ear and their thumb and their big toe and so forth. So they were anointed. I think that's the key to this. I think the two anointed ones are the king and the priest. Now, in terms of Zachariah's death, was there a king? Who's the closest thing they've got to a king? Zerubbabel, he's the leader. He's not the king. They're under Persian government. But he's the closest they've got. Who's the priest? Joshua. So I think God is supplying the resources for his people to rebuild the temple through Joshua and Zerubbabel. But I really think that this is looking beyond that. Who's our king? Who's our priest? Who provides us with the fuel to keep our lamp lit? Jesus. And so I think as we try to apply this to ourselves, thinking about Jesus as furnishing the oil that keeps us shining for the Lord is a good way to think about this. And I want to go back for a minute to these uh, lessons from 6 through 10. I've preached Zechariah 4 quite a few times. Man, this is great stuff. You know, think about it. So, the first lesson, depend on God. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. I mean, think about all the examples you can take. Gideon, with uh, three, 300 uh, very uh, well-equipped uh, men, and I think kind of uh, over-mothered men, that depends on your interpretation of how they drank and were uh, chosen. Uh, think about uh, Jonathan and his armor-bearer. The Lord doesn't care whether he saves by many or by few in 1 Samuel 14, 6. 
Think about Asa saying, you're the only one that can help in the battle between the strong and those who have no strength in 2 Chronicles 14.11. I, I love this picture. I hate going too far away from Zechariah, but you've got to see this. Isaiah 41.14. Isaiah 41.14. Isaiah 41.14. Do not fear you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. Now, you call Jacob a worm. What is the most distinctive quality of a worm? It crawls. I think there's something even more distinctive about a worm. It eats dirt. There's something even more distinctive about a worm. What makes a worm different than nearly anything else? Yeah, and therefore it's squishy. Worms are just extremely squishy, right? Okay. Do not fear you, worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you a new sharp thrashing sledge with double edges. You will thrash the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. So, the picture is, you got this worm, Jacob, God's people, and you got the mountain. I like to think of it this way, I'll give you a second possibility in a minute, but I like to think of the enemies throwing a mountain on the worm. It wouldn't, it wouldn't take a mountain, that would be quite overkill, you know. But think of the nature just throwing the mountain to squish the worm. But God transforms the worm into a huge glorified chopper. That takes that mountain and just, you know, eats it up to dust and it's carried away. That's what God does for his people. That's what he makes his people. You can be a worm and God will make you into a chopper that will deal with the mountain that's thrown on you to squish you. Or maybe he needs the mountains in front of them and, and they use the chopper to like get right through the mountain, even though they're a worm. Um, but it's the idea. In God's strength, he'll make us what we're not. He'll give us the strength. We may be a worm, but you can deal with the mountain. If you've got the Lord with you, depend on God. Think about evangelism. I can't do it. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. We'll never get anything done. Depend on the Lord. Think about growing in knowledge. I don't, I'm just not smart. I don't know anything. I can't read. I can't understand. Depend on the Lord. Think about overcoming temptation. It's too strong. I, it just overcomes me. I just can't deal with it. I'm addicted. Trust in the Lord. And so forth and so on. The lesson to depend on God is not by might nor by power, but by, by my spirit. And then the second lesson, obstacles are insignificant. The mountain becomes a plain. What about when the Israelites face the Red Sea? What did God do? Isn't that amazing? How do you cross the Red Sea? Well, the Lord will enable that. He can make the uh, mountains into a molehill. And Zechariah 14, we'll see in a minute, they, they, were, they were facing destruction. The enemy was upon them. They had nowhere to go. You know what God did in Zechariah 14? He just opened the mountain. He split it half and opened it up and gave a valley for the people to go through. God could deal with the mountain. <laughs> David and Goliath, you know, God could deal with the mountain. What Jesus said, you can tell the mountain to move into the sea. So the mountain represents overwhelming challenges or impenetrable barriers, overwhelming forces against us. 
We need to take advantage of the ability to pray for the mountain to be removed. When people debate about, well, that doesn't really mean a little mountain, well, of course not. But it means something really strong. You know, it's saying we can have mountains in front of us and God will deal with that if we'll turn to him. Obstacles don't matter. Quit making excuses for ourselves. We can do it with the Lord's help. Don't despise small things. You think about, you know, things like uh, conquering Jericho. How did they do it? They marched really well. You know, that'll really do it. <laughs> you know, it's like you can do very small things, but God will see to it that the work gets done. Give a cup of cold water in my name, uh, the mustard seed. You know, we may not have a lot of talent, a lot of resources, but God will take the small things we do and he will multiply those. Remember the, the disciples when they had five sandwiches to feed the 5,000? God says, sit them down, start giving them out. God can deal with the smallness of our resources. Don't despise the small things we have. So, let's get busy and build. That was a condensation of what can take us a long time. I mean, it just gives you some things to think about that I think are important in this passage. Zechariah 4 is really the encouragement that God's giving you what you need to get that temple rebuilt. And God's giving us what we need to accomplish whatever work he gives us to do. Thoughts and comments? Mark? Um, is there a difference when in verse 12 he says, you know, these are the two branches of the olive trees, before he says that they are like whole olive trees? Is there a significant that he's only missing part or... When we say the king and the priest, is that the whole olive tree? I suspect it's just that where do the olives grow? They don't grow on the trunk, they grow on the branches. So I suspect it's nothing more than just kind of focusing on where the olives were. Good, good observation. Maybe there's something more to that. Yes. Yeah. I wonder what you think. Uh, whenever I see, I know the oils needed some, or the lamps needed some sort of oil to burn. But every time I see olive tree, I think. Uh, I think of peace. You know, the first use of an olive branch in Genesis with peace. Romans 11 talks about we were crafted into an olive tree. You think that this is just there was a, this is just the oil they used, or maybe there was some more symbology to. Uh, I do think an olive tree certainly commonly refers to God's people. However, it's also that that's what they had. You have that common, uh, tr uh, what would you call it, a uh, triplet. That's the word I'm looking for. The grain, the oil, and the wine. You have that all over the Bible. The grain, the oil, and the wine. Because those were the staple crops of Palestine. The grain, the oil, meaning the olive, and the vine, meaning the grain. So it also was kind of what they had a lot of. So it's it would be reasonable that they use that as an illustration. But I do think the olive tree refers to God's people. Maybe there's something more than that. A lot of these things, you know, you don't always see the significance there is in things, you know. You know, I say, well, I haven't seen that. But that doesn't mean it's not there. It just may mean I haven't seen it yet. So, you know, keep thinking and keep looking and, uh, you know, you'll find things that I've never seen, that's for sure. Other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, just connecting this with Revelation 11, where there the witnesses seem to be prophetic prophets of some sort. Uh, you know, I've at other times thought of this as maybe even referring to Haggai and Zechariah in a way as the prophets of the Lord, or at least at least representing his uh, speaking to his people. Yeah, wow, so much in that. Um, 
I definitely think Revelation 11 refers back to this, the two lampstands, the two olive trees. But the lampstands in Revelation are God's people. I suspect that the two witnesses represent God's people. But what has God made his people? Kings and princes. So we become through Jesus, the anointed ones, that are then. So I think the two witnesses are God's people. Thought, I haven't thought so much about Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, who knows? I, I, but I do think the reference to king and priest leads us easily to think of Jesus and then of his people as the anointed ones. There seems to be a picture of abundant provision. Yes. Provides life. Yes. And when you come to the New Testament, John one, there's a connection between life and life. And John ten says Jesus came to give life abundantly. The Lord has no lack of resources. Yeah, I think you you look at these people thinking that they thought this was an insurmountable task to rebuild the temple, and they thought it was so small. As hard as it was for them to believe that, we have in the same situation. It comes down to faith, and we really believe. That God's word is true, that He can help us with our trials, temptations, as you said, and problems, and, and convert a lost world based on His power. Amen. Good God. Good God. All right, vision number.